Let's pray together, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless our time now as we open your holy word. May we understand what it says. May we receive its truth with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14 is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. And I'll be reading this and then giving kind of an introduction, and then we're going to walk through this very important block of text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. This is God's word. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. May God bless the reading of his holy word. A few years ago, a light came on in my car that indicated that something was running low. And from that little glowing symbol, I thought for sure that it meant the oil was low. But no matter how much oil I added, the light stayed on. And eventually I'd put so much oil in the car, it started acting rather odd. Turns out that particular glowing picture was indicating that the engine coolant was low, not the oil. And eventually the engine started to smoke badly. So I added even more oil to it, <laughs> thinking maybe it would put out the fire or something. And that light stayed on and the engine kept acting odd. And then I had no choice left. I was forced to read the instructions in the car manual. And I discovered it was the engine coolant, not the oil, that it was really low on. And I felt really foolish, honestly. What was my issue with that? I didn't understand what the problem really was, and therefore I didn't get the solution right. It's the same in theology, in the divinely re revealed truths of the Word of God in Scripture. If we don't get the problem correct, we will not understand the solution. And the primary biblical truth I'm hoping that you will see this morning clearly taught in Scripture is this. Without unconditional election, no human being would be saved. Why? Because of what sin has done to us. What has sin done to us? How has sin affected us? At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the great Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification was the doctrinal article upon which the Christian church stands 
or falls. And part of getting the gospel right is a right doctrine of sin. If we incorrectly understand the nature of the problem, we will not understand the nature of the solution. The deadliest error in all of church history is known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism. You might be wondering, what in the world is Pelagianism? I first heard that term when I was about 24 years old, listening to an online radio program of the White Horse Inn. It was the year 1999, and they had done a series of radio programs called The Great Debates in Church History. And I wanted to listen to those things in the car and on my Walkman, so I actually had a tape deck and would set my tape deck up against the speakers on my dial-up computer and would record on audio cassettes these programs and listen to them on my Walkman. Anyone here remember what a Walkman is? All right, cool. Some of you still have one. I still have one, actually. The first episode that they did was on, or the first, yeah, the first one was on biblical debates. And they covered the debates between the Pharisees and the Sadducees with Jesus and the apostles. They covered the debate with Paul and the Judaizers, the false gospels of works righteousness. They covered the debate between Paul and the Antinomians. They, they covered the debate between the apostle John and the Gnostics that are found in the New Testament. But then they did a program on the debate between Augustine and Pelagius over sin and grace. And I was not familiar with that debate. And it was fascinating. I learned a lot from listening to them discuss the history of that debate, but also the key biblical passages that decided the outcome of that debate. <clears throat> they did a program on the debate between Athanasius and Arius over the deity of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. And that helped get me grounded in the text of Scripture that teach those great truths. Then they did a program on the debate between Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus over the bondage of the will and God's sovereignty and salvation. And then they did a program on the fundamentalist modernist controversy between J. Gresson Machen and Harry Emerson Fosdick and that whole issue with the rise of liberalism. Most of these debates were new to me, but they showed so clearly to me, listening to these programs long ago, how important the Bible is. And how important what it says is. And the main takeaway from those programs that I got was the biblical passages that our Christian forefathers used to uphold the Christian faith so that we would have the Christian faith today. I learned that a deep and thorough knowledge of the text of scripture is essential to the Christian life. And to keep one rooted in the truth so that you're not deceived and not easily led astray by the smooth talking of false teachers. Last Sunday I mentioned that the great theologians and, and the pastors and the churchmen who met at the Synod of Dort in 1618 to 1619, those six months, they condemned Arminianism as teaching what they called, quote, the destructive poison of Pelagian errors. And they also said they, that the Arminians had, quote, brought again out of hell the Pelagian error. Now why did they say that over and over again in those canons? Because it was true, the Arminian party, like Pelagius, listen, they located the decisive factor in the salvation of sinners in men, not God. He said, in the final analysis, God does his thing, grace does its thing, but what's going to decide whether you're saved or not, ultimately, in the final analysis, is not God, it's you. It's what you do independently of God. And while people normally associate Pelagianism with works righteousness, it's really an error about the nature of sin. 
Historically, the real issue between Augustine and Pelagius, between Rome and the Reformation, between the Arminians and the Reformed there in the 17th century, was the nature of sin. What is sin and what did it do to us? Pelagianism is a denial of original sin. Now, you need to know what original sin is. You need to know what that is. What is the doctrine of original sin? Very often you ask people that question. They think, well, original sin is the first sin that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden. That's the, that's the original sin, right? It, that's not what original sin is. Original sin is the corruption of our whole nature. It's the condition that we were all born in that leaves us in a condition of slavery to sin and entirely unable to free ourselves from that slavery to sin. You want to know what the greatest biblical example of original sin is that, that's supposed to teach it to us? was Israel and Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. Could Israel do anything to get themselves out of that situation? No, just as the fallen sinner can do nothing to get themselves out of slavery to sin. Now what this means in practical terms is this. Mankind, all of us since Adam fell into sin, man is not able to repent. He's not able to believe in Jesus. He's not able to understand the things of God. He's not able to bear good fruit. He's not able to do anything spiritually good accompanying or leading to his own salvation. And you'll see this morning, that's exactly what the scriptures teach again and again. This is why the entire Christian church from the time of Augustine in the 5th century condemned Pelagianism as heresy, and the whole Christian church continues to condemn Pelagianism as heresy, even to this day. And I'll tell you something. We don't even differ with Rome on this issue, ultimately. Now, we would maintain they hold to a form of Pelagianism because they still locate the decisive factor in man, but even the Council of Trent responding to the Reformation said, if anyone says that man can be saved without the grace of God, let him be anathema. But Pelagianism is the denial of original sin because it says that man still has some native ability in himself to save himself apart from God's direct intervention. Now, who was Pelagius? Pelagius was a British monk who denied the classical biblical doctrine of original sin. And as a natural consequence of that error, he taught, listen, that salvation was achieved by sinners following the righteous example of Christ rather than the unrighteous example of Adam. And this is why we ought to be rather nervous when we see phenomenon come up in broad evangelicalism like the what would Jesus do stuff. Remember that? Remember the what would Jesus do? Does anyone anyone here remember that? Okay, okay, all right. I thought, man, you guys are so insulated from what I grew up in. Like, wow, okay. The bracelets, the trinkets, the t-shirts, WWJD. I had a professor at RTS in Jackson, Mississippi, who had a huge red circle on his door. It said WWJD with a large line through it. And then underneath it, he had WHJD. And I said, what does that stand for? He says, it stands for what has Jesus done? Not what would Jesus do? What has he done? Because in the ultimate sense, it doesn't matter what he would do. We can't do it. We can never obey God perfectly. It's what has Jesus done? The reason good biblical theologians and Christians tend to get nervous about campaigns like the What Would Jesus Do campaign is it smells like Pelagianism. It smells like the oldest heresy there is. Christianity at its heart is a religion of substitutionary saving work by the perfect work of Christ. It's about what Christ did in our behalf. 
It's not primarily us trying to imitate what we think Jesus would do in various situations. Pelagianism, the denial of original sin, the teaching that salvation is by works, the teaching that Jesus Christ is our Savior only in the sense that he provides us a better example to follow, was condemned by numerous church synods and councils and was forcefully refuted in the writings of the great Augustine of Hippo. One of my favorite theologians, Robert Raymond, wrote these couple sentences, quote, It should be noted that Pelagianism did not die with its conciliar condemnation in 418 AD. Men and women being born as they are with Pelagian hearts. But rather, it only went underground. And then he gives a quotation from B.B. Warfield. Meanwhile, vexing the church with modified forms of itself, modified just enough to escape the letter of the church's condemnation, end quote. That's the way false teaching always works. It's subtle. It's modified just enough, just ambiguous enough to escape condemnation. It's subtle and tries to sneak into the church by stealth. In fact, Paul uses that exact expression about the Galatian Judaizers in Galatians 2.4. He says, this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us back into bondage. Okay, so that's the way false teaching always works. It's always very subtle. It's always, well, you could interpret it this way or that way. Isn't it possible you could interpret it this way? Is it possible you could interpret it that way? You know, one of my children gave me a wonderful present. It's a Spurgeon quote, fire engraved into a piece of wood. It says, do not labor so that you won't be, uh, don't labor to be understood, labor to be impossible to be misunderstood. And if people were constantly, well, what is Patrick really getting at? We just don't really know what he's talking about. What, what does he really mean by this? How do you really get into heaven? I wouldn't do what I'm doing here. I would resign. If people were confused by what I had to say about how you get to heaven, I would not be doing this. Because that's the way errors work. It's always subtle. It's always sneaky. It's always modified a little bit here, modified a little bit there. But the thing is, in spite of the early church's faithfulness to biblical truth, there was an undercurrent of Pelagianism that continues to haunt professing Christians to this day. Augustine is known to church history as the doctor of grace. In his day, it really was salvation by works versus salvation by grace. But over time, listen, salvation by grace turned into salvation by works enabled by grace. Works made possible by grace. In other words, we're still saved by grace alone. Grace alone makes it possible for us to do this and do that and do this and do that so that we can be saved. The fatal error, salvation by grace plus works. That's what Paul wrote the entire book of Galatians to refute, to make sure it would never come back into the church. The Galatian error appears in numerous forms in every generation of Christians. We will face it. We're facing it now. Your kids will face it too. Lip services paid to the need for grace, but grace by itself, apart from man's works, is never sufficient to save. Perhaps the greatest reason this middle position between works and grace has been so popular over the centuries is because so many in the church today do not have a biblical doctrine of original sin. They don't have a biblical doctrine of sin and what sin did to us. So much of a church in our time, like me with my car, is trying to fix a shortage of engine coolant by adding more oil instead of coolant. And then we can't understand why the light's still on. It's hard to understand the solution correctly if we don't understand the problem. Our great Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter, chapter 6, 
of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. Listen to it. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Pretty clear, isn't it? The Westminster Confession of Faith also has a chapter of the will of man. Chapter 9, of free will. There are four different conditions to man's will. There's Adam before the fall. There's mankind after the fall in our state of sin before we're born again. There's mankind after he's born again. And then there's mankind in heaven. Those are the four states of man's will. What we need to understand for our purposes here is point number three. Man after the fall. What is his will like according to scripture? Listen, 9.3 of our confession. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And here's the critical point everyone must understand if you're going to understand the true graciousness of the gospel. Sin has a twofold aspect to it. Original sin is our condition being conceived in Adam after the fall. The human nature we have has lost its original righteousness and the corrupted and evil nature we inherit from Adam causes us to be utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. This is the biblical doctrine of total depravity. There is no part of us that was not impacted or touched by the fall of man into sin. We are not partially fallen or partially impacted by sin, and we're not partially dead either. Every part of our constitution as human beings, body and soul, was touched by Adam's fall into sin. And the key to the biblical doctrine of the effects of sin is simply stated as this. We are not able to do anything spiritually pleasing to God in that condition. Original sin is that, I mean, isn't this uplifting? Aren't you excited? You get beat up all week. I come to church, I get original sin. Man, lighten up a little bit. But this is what magnifies the grace of God. Believe me, it's coming. Original sin is the biblical teaching based on innumerable passages of scripture. Once man has fallen into sin, he no longer has any ability to do anything towards his own salvation. And these passages, I'm going to read eight of them to you here quickly. This is what Augustine looked at in scripture. Augustine heard this false teaching. Yeah, Adam just, Adam's sin only affected Adam. It didn't affect us at all. We have everything that we need in ourselves without any help from God to save ourselves. And Augustine's like, no, we don't. Look at scripture, Matthew 7, 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Not able to, it can't. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. 
John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Remember Nicodemus' response? He's like, what are you talking about? How can a man be born when he is old? Remember Jesus' answer? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, Nicodemus. John six forty four. Jesus said, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 65. Therefore I have said to you, no one is able to come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. <clears throat> John 14, 17. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You hear that? The Spirit of truth, the world is not able to receive him. And then Romans 8, 7 and 8. The, the carnal mind, the unbelieving mind is hostile against God. It is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed is it able to be. So then those who are in the flesh, the unconverted man, cannot please God. And then 1 Corinthians 2.14, <clears throat> the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor is he able to know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is why the Christian church from the time of Augustine in the 400s all the way down to this very day, our reformed forefathers saw it again when the Arminians started saying, no, 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 man, man is able, man is able, man can do it, man can do it. They looked at all these same passages and said, no, we can't. Look at the scriptures. It says not able, not able, not able, not able. You guys are just contradicting him. <clears throat> man is not able <clears throat> to do anything to save himself. And they said that this was heresy. The Reformed churches in the Netherlands in the early 1700s, they ejected all of the Arminian ministers. All of them were thrown out as a bunch of heretics. Isn't that incredible? They actually pulled that off. They actually did it. Without unconditional election and the invincible and irresistible grace of God, how could anyone in such a condition of disability ever be saved? The Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture to the sheep of Christ has stated repeatedly and emphatically in many, many contexts that man in his fallen condition is not able to do anything to save himself. God must save us. And listen, please, God does not make salvation possible. God actually saves. He actually accomplishes it. For so many, it is believed that, well, as long as you say that grace is necessary somewhere in the equation, that you're off the hook. But I want to let you know, nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> The issue that brought about the Protestant Reformation was not whether or not man needs grace or some assistance to be saved. The issue was, is grace by itself sufficient to save us apart from human cooperation? To that question, Rome said no. To that question, most Protestants today say no. But all of our Protestant and Reformed forefathers and Augustine and the early church all said, yes, grace alone is sufficient because God is the one who elects. God is the one who effectually calls. God is the one who breaks the human will and draws his elect people to himself through the gospel. Grace alone saves us. Grace alone saves us. It's sufficient to save apart from human cooperation. In fact, the effectual regenerating call of God to his elect people at his appointed time is, praise his name, irresistible. Irresistible. It's such a beautiful word. And indeed, both their faith in Christ and their repentance are blood purchase gifts of the Lord Jesus. 
The fallen sinner is entirely passive in being born again. We contribute nothing to it. The biblical illustration, the miracle that Jesus did that captures it the best, listen to God's word, John eleven forty three. 43. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Just like Lazarus, we were dead, not physically yet, but in our sins and our trespasses. And when the father draws one of his own at his appointed time, when they hear the gospel, the dead sinner will be made alive by God, made alive in Christ in that instant. The scripture says, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's God's doing. God raises the spiritually dead to life. But is it really true? After the fall, mankind has wholly, entirely lost any ability toward any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Is that really true? I want you to see it. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 7 again. Let's walk through this great passage. I think you'll see it here very clearly. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. Paul writes here, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Okay, there's a lot in this little block of text, so let's just stop here for a minute. Paul had preached truth to them. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ, truths that are undiscoverable by human reason. None of the ancient Greek philosophers, none of the Roman philosophers, none of the Egyptian philosophers had understood the ultimate truth about anything. They had not understood the ultimate truth about who God is, his holiness, his tri-personality. They had not understood what man's real problem is. They didn't understand that man needed regeneration, he needed a new birth. They didn't understand any of that. Even the Jewish people who had the scriptures of the Old Testament, apart from the special supernatural rebirth and divine enlightenment from God, they didn't understand the gospel of free grace either. Remember when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ? Remember that great scene? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus said in response to him getting that correct? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus lets Peter know he finally got something right. But it's not because you're super smart or spiritual, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. You didn't figure it out on your own. My Father revealed it to you. God revealed this to you. You see, you see what Paul is hammering away at here? And, and you're going to see it even more clearly as we get through more verses in the chapter there in 1 Corinthians 2. God the Father in heaven revealed it to Peter in his iconic dialogue with a man fittingly named Ignorance in the Pilgrim's Progress. 
At one point in this conversation, ignorance keeps talking about how, how good he is. And, well, my heart's good. And, well, maybe your heart's bad, but my heart's good. And I know all these things. And I know the Lord. And Christian finally says to him, why, man? Christ is so hid in God from the natural apprehensions of the flesh that he cannot by any man be savingly known unless God the Father reveals him to them. And Christian is exactly right. That's why, if you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, you need to read it. It was, Charles Spurgeon said, next to the Bible, that was his favorite book. Here's the application as summarized in verse 10 here. You see verse 10 again? For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Here's the the application. The gospel of a full and free salvation by faith alone and Christ alone has been revealed by God through the Holy Spirit to the hearts of all true believers, all true Christians. The Holy Spirit alone searches and can thus reveal those deep things of God to sinners. There is no power in us to figure them out. No power in us to bring Christ down from heaven and make him serve us or to to figure it out on our own. No amount of sincerity, no amount of seeking or anything can bring about this divine saving revealing of the saving truth to our hearts. It's something God alone does. And the illustration in verse 11 makes it even more explicit. Look at verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now think about that. What a great illustration. Two human beings can stand and stare at each other and think all kinds of things. They can have all kinds of things in their thoughts. And the other person has absolutely no way of knowing what that other person is thinking unless they reveal it to them. People hide much in their thoughts from other people. In the final analysis, no person really knows the thoughts of a person except that person. It is the same with God. No one, no human being, can know the thoughts of God except the divine person of the Holy Spirit who knows them all, reveals them to him. The three persons who share the one undivided being of God know one another, search one another, and they love one another, but it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who takes from what is God's and delivers it to elect sinners when they're born again and effectually called. We're taught by God how to trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who causes us to know the things of God. Now look at verses 12 and 13. See it? Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Maybe we should try to do this at some point in our church. It's wonderful to hear people share their testimonies, how they came to faith in Christ. And everyone's testimony is glorious. I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, I don't have a very cool testimony. I don't even remember not knowing Christ. I was probably regenerated in the womb. That's the greatest testimony there is. Not to remember days of rebellion. Okay, so everyone has a wonderful testimony. There's nothing dull about crossing from death to life, no matter when it happened. One theme you often hear when you hear people share their stories is how they suddenly understood scripture, which they knew before, but they didn't get. And there's a divine anointing 
that God gives to all of his children. This doesn't make them infallible, of course, nor does it mean that they don't need to put any effort into understanding scripture or growing in the Christian life. When a person is born again and then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that person is now a child of God and God will, through his spirit who indwells them, cause them to know and understand the things freely given them by God. I mean, it's right there. Look at verse 12. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That's the Holy Spirit. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And what's the point here? A person who does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them cannot savingly know the things of God. Apart from unconditional electing grace and God's effectual call and the Spirit teaching us those things, we cannot know them. 1 John addresses this too. The book of 1 John is glorious. 1 John 2.19, listen. Talking about the, the hypocrites, the people that were in the church for a while and then they disappear. They went out from us. They were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. And what's John's point there? You would never believe that Jesus was merely a phantom. You will understand he was a real flesh and blood human being. Because the Spirit of God has revealed that to you. And then later in that same chapter, 1 John 2, 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Those who really do know the saving graces of repentance unto life and faith in Christ alone, they receive the Spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit. He will indwell that saved person and teach them from Scripture. The Spirit of God teaches his people from Scripture. And helps them understand what it says. Yes, they still need pastors. They need elders. They need fellowship. But the Holy Spirit of God, God the Son, and God the Father are ultimately always the divine teachers of the sheep of Christ. We are actually indwelt by the entire Trinity. Do you realize that? There's a special intense indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the scriptures teach we're indwelled by all three. All three of the persons of the Godhead and dwell the believer. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There's the Holy Spirit. John 6, 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so we're taught by all three, really. Who is the ultimate teacher of the blood-purchased sheep of Christ? God is. God works through his word and Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, to cause us to relinquish our trust in our own good works, and teaches us to rest upon the finished and perfect work of Christ alone for the whole of our salvation. Do you see how all of this knowing of divine truths finds its source in God and not in the wills or the desires of fallen men. You can't miss it in this passage. I've heard so many people, and I'm one of them myself. I heard John 3.16 my whole life. Every NFL game I ever saw when they were kicking a field goal. There it is. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. I, I knew that verse. It was tattooed to my brain from the time I was a little kid. I knew Romans 8. I knew Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I knew Romans 6, 20, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I knew those my whole life, but I didn't get them. Why? Because the gentle, loving gracious work of the Holy Spirit had not yet been wrought. He hadn't given them to me savingly yet. When this divine work happens, we may then know the things freely given to us by God. And before that, we can't know them. We can't believe them. And now we come to the biblical reason why we can't know them without the irresistible grace of God, which is the fruit of unconditional electing grace. And this is what historic Christian theology is talking about when it speaks of original sin. Look at verse 14. You see it? But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. You see how that's the capstone of everything he said so far? The Spirit of God makes us to know all this stuff, causes us to be able to receive the things given to us by God. But a natural man can't. A natural man can't know those things. This is what Augustine and the Christian people through the centuries have seen in God's word. This is how Augustine answered Pelagius, and this is how Christian must answer Pelagius' modern disciples today. The fall was devastating in its consequences. You know, Pelagius said that the fall only affected Adam and didn't affect anybody else. And all that we need to do to be right with God is to be good. Follow the better example that Jesus set. Don't follow Adam's bad example. Follow Jesus' example and be a good person. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the apostles, our Lord Jesus, all the authors of Scripture said, man needs something much more than a better example. Man needs a supernatural, spiritual resurrection from on high by the almighty hand of God. And you see the opening line of verse 14. What is a natural man? The natural man, it says there. What is a natural man? That's a fallen human being who as yet is untouched by the divine new birth. The natural person, the person who's not been born again, they don't accept the things of the spirit of God, no matter how clearly they're preached or propounded or explained to them. There are many things people could do, but they don't do because they don't want to. But when it comes to repenting and coming to Christ, all of mankind is laying in a valley of dry bones. All of mankind is dead in sin. And unregenerate man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He does not accept the gospel as the remedy for his sins and as the only hope of reconciliation with God. And the reason he doesn't is because he can't. He's not able to understand those things savingly. And also because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. Please remember this always. Human beings, whether they're regenerate or unregenerate, born again or not, we always do the thing that we desire to do the most. Whatever has the strongest desire, that's what we will do. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of this truth, listening to R.C. Sproul years ago, his Willing to Believe series, he said, you know, I love ice cream. And I also would really love to be more fit. Therefore, I find myself having a con constant conflict of these warring desires. Desiring to be a little more fit and a desire to eat ice cream. 
And he often found himself standing in front of the refrigerator while these two desires battled for supremacy. And the desire for ice cream, he admitted, usually won that battle. And this illustrates the point perfectly. We will always choose to do that which we desire the most to do, every time. We go through the very same inner battles with sin ourselves if we're Christians. There's evil desires and godly desires that are at war with one another in us constantly. It's exhausting, but we have to stand and fight. And before I give the the punchline to this great illustration, I just want to encourage you all. This is why we need Christian fellowship. This is why friendship is so important. Being with God's people, worshiping with God's people, taking communion with God's people, praying with other believers, praying with your spouse, studying scripture with God's people, studying the Bible with your spouse, fellowship with God's people. Those things strengthen godly desires. We're commanded in scripture, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So often, after being with Christian friends and brothers and sisters and having some good conversation about divine things, we'll say to one another, I really needed this. Not enough of that happens. We need it to stimulate, to stir one another on to love and good works, to make those desires stronger for divine things, to make the desire for sin weaker, for the, for the word of God to do what is right, to shun evil. We need stronger desires for those things. Whatever we can do in order to strengthen godly desires and crucify wicked ones, we must do. Our marriages ought to be a tremendous source of strength toward doing what is good and shunning evil. But here's the point of application. In the unregenerate, natural man, there will never be any true desire to repent of sin. No true desire to come to Christ. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. He doesn't accept them because he cannot, and they are foolishness to him. This is the biblical doctrine of original sin in living color. Original sin really refers to man's inability to save himself. The person who's not yet born again, he doesn't believe the gospel because he cannot believe it. Their rejection of God's grace grace is nothing like Dr. Sproul's battle over ice cream. It's not that the unbeliever is conflicted and he's just not sure which way he's going to go. The unbeliever is hostile to God running from God, hiding from God, and has no desire to turn from sin. Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh, the unregenerate mind is enmity toward God, is hostile toward God. A term translated hostile is the the Greek term ekthra. That's actually the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for enmity in Genesis 3, 15. Enmity I will put between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And that's what Paul's talking about. The unbelieving mind, he's not neutral. He's not sitting on the fence. It's not that, well, maybe I'll go with God, maybe I won't. It's, I want nothing to do with God. I'm in love with sin. Humanity's not neutral with regard to God. Those who are unregenerate are hostile to him. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, has no interest in the things of the Spirit of God, doesn't want to come to Christ because they love sin. You know, Arminianism represented a flat denial of that truth. 
Arminianism was saying that there is as yet still something left that's good in man. Something left in him that can convert himself to Christ if he's only induced or given good advice. The Reformed churches in the Netherlands, 100 years after Luther, they understood that false teaching perfectly for what it was. It was a direct attack on the biblical doctrine of grace, too. The only kind of grace that Scripture teaches is unconditional, electing grace. And because the fall left us incapacitated in our sins, only direct, electing, loving, divine, and praise God, irresistible intervention can raise us back to life. Our Reformed forefathers saw how this detracted from the saving glory of Jesus Christ's work. In the third and fourth heads of doctrine in the canons of Dort, which spell out total depravity and then irresistible grace, they list nine distinct errors that the Arminians made on those points. And I wanted to read to you just the last three and then their response to them. Here's what the Arminians were teaching. After they spell out the biblical truth and the different articles that they set forth, they then come to the rejection of errors. They said, we therefore reject the errors of those who teach that the grace whereby we are converted to God is only a gentle advising. Believe me, you need something more than good advice. Or as others explain it, that this is the noblest manner of working in the conversion of man and that this manner of working, which consists in advising, you, know, you, you might want to consider repenting and coming to Christ so you, you don't go to hell, is most in harmony with man's nature. And that there is no reason why this advising grace alone should not be sufficient to make the natural man spiritual. Indeed, that God does not produce the consent of the will except through this manner of advising and that the power of the divine working whereby it surpasses the working of Satan consists in this, that God promises eternal, God's, God's promises are eternal while Satan's promises are only temporal. Here's how they answered this. But this is altogether Pelagian and contrary to the whole scripture which besides this teaches yet another and far more powerful and divine manner of the Holy Spirit's working in the conversion of man, as in Ezekiel. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your heart of flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Those passages could be multiplied. Notice the prophet doesn't say, I will advise you to let me give you a new heart. I will advise you to let me take out your heart of stone. It's something God simply does. God simply acts. He doesn't wait for permission. How could he wait for the permission of a dead man? They say also, we reject the errors of those who teach that God in the regeneration of man does not use such powers of his omnipotence as potently and infallibly bends man's will to faith and conversion but that all the works of grace having been accomplished which God employs to convert man, listen, man may yet so resist God and the Holy Spirit when God intends man's regeneration and wills to regenerate him, and indeed that man often does so resist that he prevents entirely his regeneration and that it therefore remains in man's power to be regenerated or not. So in other words, Lazarus in the tomb could have gone, Eh, I don't want to. When Jesus said, come forth. When God gives a new heart, they're saying man can say, no, I don't want to be made alive. 
Where could you possibly go in scripture to prove such things? And then finally, they said, we reject the errors of those who teach that grace and free will are partial causes, which together work the beginning of conversion. And that grace, in order of working, does not precede the working of the will. That is, that God does not efficiently help the will of man under conversion until the will of man moves and determines to do this. I mean, hear what they're saying? God's going to give it his best shot. He's going to try. He'd love to come regenerate you, but you have the power to tell him no. He won't actually make you born again until the will of man moves to determine it. And the reformed father said, for the ancient church has long ago condemned this doctrine of the Pelagians, according to the words of the apostle, Romans 9, 16. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Likewise, for who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 13. What was the sacred cow of the Arminians? What was the sacred cow of the Pelagians? What's the sacred cow of Rome? The autonomy and the decisive power of the human will, acting on its own to bring about salvation. What did our Christian forefathers from Augustine forward say in response to this? They said, that's not what scripture teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. And they recognized our reformed forefathers in the Netherlands. What have the Armenians done? Had they come up with brilliant new insights? No, they just repackaged old heresy. So there's three options before you. Really, there's only two, but historically, they're, they're couched as three. The first one, man saves himself. The second one, man saves himself with God's help. And then there's the third, God saves man. I submit to you from front to back, this book teaches that God alone saves sinners. And he does it to the praise of of the glory of his grace. And may not one of us ever think otherwise so as to detract from the glory that Jesus will get from his father on the day of judgment when he presents his church holy and without blame and says, here am I and the children that you have given me. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we bless your name that Jesus cannot fail to do that which he was sent to do. And he said what he was sent to do, that of all that you have given me, I will lose none. We bless your name that we serve a, an almighty and an all-powerful Savior. We bless your name that our faith in Christ did not originate in us, that that's a fruit that does not grow in nature's garden. It's something you gave to us through the preaching of the gospel. It's something you strengthen through the use of the Lord's Supper as we'll be partaking here in a moment. We bless your name for your unconditional electing love. We bless your name that your elect people will receive mercy. The non-elect will receive justice. And nobody gets injustice. Thank you so much for making us vessels of mercy and not justice. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.